0: Well, C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his most famous books, a book called Mere Christianity, there's a section that he's talking about the claims and the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. And he, he's making the point that Jesus was not just a normal man. And, and here's, here's a quote I want to read. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. And here's what people often say, the silly thing that Lewis is trying to prevent people from saying, "I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God." Then Lewis goes on to say, "This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, as you encounter Christ in the Scriptures, as we will encounter Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we're all forced with with a decision to make. And it's a decision that I would argue is one of the most important decisions that you could ever make. And that is to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the question we all must eventually consider. And what, what C.S. Lewis argues is you can either call him a liar, you can say he's a lunatic, or you can call him Lord. And that's the test, because the things that Jesus says, the things that he does, his teachings, you, you can't just say, he's, well, he's just a good moral teacher. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit with his teachings and who he understood himself to be. And so this morning we're going to begin a trek through through a, a biography of sorts. We're going to begin our study through the Gospel of Mark and and what we have in the Gospel of Mark is an eyewitness account of the life and teachings of this man Jesus. Although the author of Mark is never mentioned, tradition in early church history tells us that John Mark was the author, the the relative of Barnabas and the early missionary who who journeyed with Paul and others. He's the he's the most likely author. And the earliest tradition also tells us that John Mark, this author, is writing down Peter's gospel accounts. And so although Mark was never uh, walking a disciple with Jesus, he's writing Peter's recollection. And so this is an eyewitness account. Peter is telling us what he saw, what he heard about this man Jesus. And might I remind you that Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples and so this morning, we're, we're going to look at the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. We're, we're going to look at the first 15 verses. And at the outset, like, like I hope to always do, I, I want to give you the outline, the main idea of the sermon. Okay, so here's the sentence that, that, that I want to, 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 you to leave here as the, the thesis or the main idea. And that is, Jesus comes as the promised Son of God sent by the Father with authority to establish the kingdom of God. That's what we'll see. I think that's the main point of these 15 verses that we're going to see, that Jesus comes as the promised Son of God, sent by the Father with authority to establish the kingdom of God. And so as we look at these verses, I want you to to have on your mind the question, who is Jesus? I want us to answer that question from this passage. So hopefully you're there by now, but you can follow along. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read Mark 1, verses 1 through 15. Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, that is John, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he, that is Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So there's our passage this morning, those 15 verses. Now I've broken this down into three sections. Okay, there's three sections, and each section is focusing on a, a specific aspect of Jesus' identity. And so these, these three sections, as you'll see outlined, it's all focusing on who is Jesus. That's a question you want to answer. And so the three sections are Jesus must be understood first, from verses 1 through 8, in light of the prophets who came before him, Jesus must be understood second, I think from verses 9 through 13, in light of the divine plan that's being carried out. And then third, Jesus must be understood in light of his message that we see from verses 14 through 15. So there's the outline. Uh, Now let's begin verses 1 through 8. Jesus must be understood in light of the prophets who came before him. So this gospel, if you're familiar with the other gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, if you're familiar, this, this one starts a bit abnormally. If you, if you know Matthew and Luke, we've, we've just come through the Christmas season, these are the gospels that, that recount the birth narratives. They tell all about the supernatural birth. In fact, Matthew spends all of chapter 1 with the genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, to make the point that this one born is not a normal person. This is a, an abnormal person. And so Matthew and Luke start, start focusing on the birth of Jesus. And and John, if you know John, he doesn't, he doesn't really talk about the birth, but he goes even farther back, and in, in John chapter 1, the first 14 verses, that's one of the most magnificent passages about the person and identity of Jesus, and he says, in the beginning, we're not going back to Bethlehem, we're going back to in the beginning was the word. And so John starts even further back, but his point is to show the significance of the person Jesus. And here in Mark, it almost seems as though he doesn't care about the birth of Jesus, in fact, he begins, it seems, in verse 9 in those days Jesus came from Nazareth. Just dropped out of the blue. Here's Jesus stepping on the scene. Nothing about his preexistence, nothing about his miraculous birth, just a nonchalant, in those days Jesus came from Galilee. Now, why does Mark begin that way? Does he not care about establishing the significance of Jesus? I mean, I would argue that, that even though Mark goes about it differently, we recognize he goes about it differently, I think Mark still wants to make the this, this strong point that Jesus cannot be understood apart from the prophets who came before him. In other words, Mark wants us to know that when Jesus steps on the scene, it doesn't start there. It actually was, was told long before with the prophets who are before him. Mark wants us to locate Jesus in God's bigger story, the bigger picture, God's plan that was foretold by the prophets. And so he says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he locates what's happening in chapter 1 with what came before. So Mark is going to make the case that all of God's prophets were actually preparing the way for what was about to happen. So pay attention to the one who's about to come. And so how does he make that case? Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet... And then he quotes, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you have if you have footnotes in your Bible, you can look down at the bottom and you can see that that, that quotation is kind of a, a meld of, of several different Old Testament passages. You probably have Malachi 3:1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3, reference. Now, some people will throw an Exodus verse in there. Um, but here. Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, both, I think Mark is making the point that both of these are pointing to John the Baptist who's pointing to Jesus. So, so quickly look at, you don't have to turn there, I'll read Malachi 3.1. I just, I want to briefly mention these verses that he's quoting here and show you, I think, the point he's making, why Mark uses these quotes. So in Malachi 3, here's, here's what Malachi writes, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so in Malachi, the thing I want to point out from that passage is is there's two characters. He says, My messenger is gonna prepare the way before me. So there's the messenger, and then there's the me, the person talking. And so the the flow is messenger, and then me, who the one speaking is the Lord of hosts. So do you see that in Malachi it's saying, Messenger's coming, then comes the Lord. The Lord of hosts. Okay? So that's Malachi. Then Isaiah 40, the, the, the reference there, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so again, like the Malachi quotation, this verse, there's two characters. There's the voice crying. Okay? Then second, there's the Lord. Do you see? In a voice cries, and this, this is the voice crying, and here's what it says. Prepare a way for the Lord. The Lord's coming. So those are two characters. And so the larger, so in both of these Old Testament prophets, there's this anticipation, there's this this messenger in Malachi and this voice in Isaiah, and both of them are saying, when he appears, the Lord himself is not far behind. The Lord is coming. And so Mark is using both of those Old Testament passages to point to the appearance of John, who I would say is the third prophet who appears before Jesus. And so here's John, who shows up, verses 4 through 8. Immediately after the Isaiah quote and the Malachi quote, Mark introduces John the Baptist. Now, some of you, if if you're kids in here, maybe you are grossed out that he eats locusts, he eats bugs. He's he's kind of a strange guy. He's dressed in camel hair. He's a strange guy, but this strange guy is clearly identified. I think Mark wants us to clearly identify him as the voice crying out in the wilderness in Isaiah and the messenger preparing the way for the Lord in Isaiah. Malachi, and so why? Why does Mark notice verse six? What I just mentioned. Why does Mark care about his appearance? I mean, if you erase verse six, the, the story still flows. It still makes perfect sense, right? But verse six, Mark mentions his appearance and what he eats. And so why? So here, here's what's going on. John, John is baptizing people. People are coming by droves. In fact, it says all of Judea and Jerusalem are coming out to him to be baptized. And then there's the verse 6, now he was clothed with camel's hair. Now, what Mark, I think, is doing is establishing the connection between John the Baptist and the prophets who were before him. Okay, so this this description, if you can write this down, you don't have to go there, but in 2 Kings 1, uh, verse 8, Elijah is described almost identical as as wearing this camel hair and a leather belt. This, This is descriptions of Old Testament prophets. And so when John comes on the scene, he does so as the last in the line of those who are before him, the last prophet. I would argue that that John is the last Old Testament prophet. That's who he is. That's what he comes to do. He's a prophet. And not only the last prophet, but the prophet who points to the point of all the prophets, the one who prepares the way for the Lord. And notice also his message. He's preparing the way for the Lord. And his, his, the sole existence of John is to point to the one coming. Did you catch that? He says, after me in verse 7, there's one who's mightier than I am. I don't even deserve to, to untie his sandals. That, that's a menial task. That's what servants did for powerful people. They untied this, the straps of the sandals. And John says, he's so mighty, I don't even deserve to untie his sandals. And, and not only that, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Spirit John the Baptist leaves no room for misunderstanding. He's not the Messiah. He's not the one they're waiting for. He's the one pointing. He's the messenger. He's the voice saying the one you're waiting for is coming. The greater one is coming. And so Jesus was the promised one that all the prophets pointed to the coming Lord and we must understand Jesus in light of those prophets. Now before we move on to our second point, I want to make a few applications here. I think I think there's a good spot To stop and make a couple applications. First, hopefully as you're hearing me, I think we have in John the Baptist an example. I think we have an example to follow. John the Baptist was pointing to the greater one. I mean, just just imagine yourself in this scene, this picture. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem are going out to John. I mean, think streams of people, streams of people coming to see this one guy in the wilderness. And so they're going out to him, all being drawn to this prophet-like Now imagine if you're John. If if you're anything like me, if I'm John, there's a temptation that's boiling in me as I see all these droves and droves of people. Yeah, I'm I'm the the voice. I'm the messenger. How, How easy for him to want to share in the spotlight. I mean, people coming just to see him. But that's not his attitude. There's no pride. There's no arrogance. His significance is found outside of himself. John's significance is found only in pointing to Jesus. And I I think that's a great reminder for those of us who follow Jesus. Just a simple application. Our lives, our gifts, our callings and careers, our ministries, they're not about us. Self-promotion, self-importance, these things have no place in the life of the follower of Jesus. Brother, sister, if God has called you to himself, and you're a servant of him, you're a humble servant. You're called by him for his purposes. It's for his namesake. So we all, like mirrors, we, we deflect any attention coming our way. We redirect it towards the one who deserves our attention and the attention of others. We, we're like little arrows pointing to the greater one, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And so this week, maybe a good way to start your morning, Christian, is, is to wake up and ask, "How might I point others to Jesus today? How might I make much of him in my mundane tasks? My attitude, maybe my attitude, or, or the way I respond to difficulties, a difficult coworker, a difficult v- boss. How can I point my family to Christ as I respond to my kids when they disobey? My words that I use. How might I point others to Christ? Oh, that we would be a church full of John-like members, all in one accord, pointing others to Christ. He's the one. It's not about me. It's it's all him. He must become greater. Well, second, a second application that I'll, I'll mention here is the identity of Jesus. Just in this first few verses, Jesus is the Lord. I mean, it's clear. He's the one because john is identified as the one the voice calling in the wilderness and after the voice comes the lord himself and and john says it's jesus and so here we at the outset of this gospel one thing that we'll see is all the characters or most of the characters they don't know who jesus is even the disciples it's not until i think chapter eight where peter declares you're the christ the son of the living god before that there's confusion who is this In fact, there's a time where where he has just multiplied bread and fish, and then they're immediately found there's another situation. They need bread and fish, and the disciples say, what are we going to do? They forget it. They don't get his identity. But here at the outset, we as readers have the advantage to know this is the Lord himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity in flesh. It is the Lord himself. And then lastly, last application just from here is is I want to point you that That Jesus is the main idea of the Bible. All the prophets were all pointing to Him. He's the climax of the story. It's all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus Christ and His gospel. So when Jesus steps on the scene, it's not a new start. It's not like, okay, here's, here's the beginning of this new plan. This is this is the continuation of all that's come before. The culmination of God's eternal plan being worked out in history. Let's look secondly, Jesus must be understood in light of the divine plan. Not only must Jesus be understood in light of the prophets who were before him, he must be also understood in light of the divine plan that's unfolding right before our eyes as we read chapter 1. And so there's four specific things that, that surround this baptism that tell us this is a divine plan that's taking place. This is something supernatural going on. And so Mark doesn't go into detail about why Jesus is baptized. He doesn't talk about Jesus refu- or John's refusal to baptize Jesus. He simply says he was baptized. And Mark's point is to point about is to focus on what happens after the baptism. And so notice verse ten. He came up out of the water immediately. He saw the heavens being torn open. So the heavens are torn open. This isn't the prophet like the sea or the Jordan being split. This is heaven itself being split. And this language is, is descriptive of, of the imminence of God. God is about to speak. This is, this is divine revelation. Heaven opens up as if God has opened the windows and he's going to say something. In fact, in Ezekiel 1, this is exactly how Ezekiel began his prophecy. He says, I was among the exiles and the heavens were opened up and I saw visions of God. And so here, the heavens opening, this, this, this has weight when it this is recorded as the heavens opening. Opening Isaiah 64 is another passage where the, the prophet Isaiah says, Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a fulfillment of the Lord rending the heavens and, and coming down. So when Mark records that the heavens are torn open, this, that God is doing something. This isn't just another one of the men who's come to the Jordan to be baptized. This, this, is, this is something different. And then, secondly, not only are the heavens torn, but the Spirit def- descends. Again, the the background of the Spirit anointed prophet. The prophet of the Lord was anointed with the Spirit. That's how the prophet carried out his ministry. The Spirit was a sign of anointing and empowering. And not only just the the normal prophet, but in in Isaiah chapter 11, the the promise of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, he's described as as the, the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest. That's the Messiah that's being described there in Isaiah 11. And so the Messiah is being presented as the one who will live in total dependence on God through the Spirit. So here, at the baptism, the Spirit falls on Christ, on Jesus. The heavens open, the Spirit descends, God is doing something. Jesus from Nazareth is no ordinary man, no moral teacher. Thirdly, as if those two signs are not enough, look at verse 11. It it, it keeps going, a voice came from heaven. The voice says, you are my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. Now as we read this, there isn't really a question on on whose voice that is. I think we instinctively, we intuitively reread it and understand that that's the voice of the Father. The one who sent the Son, right? It doesn't say whose voice it is, but but with the context and way we understand, that's the voice of the Father. And so this man from Nazareth is none other than the divine Son, the Son of God, as Mark pointed us to in verse 1. The promised son of David, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord himself, this is him. Now, we have to be careful not to fall into wrong thinking about this situation, about the person of Christ. And and what I mean is, is we have to be careful not to think that Jesus becomes the son here. This sonship, it's not functional Okay, he doesn't become the son here. It's not like here's some, some random guy from, from Galilee who's coming, and then God says, oh, that's the one I want. This is my son. Okay, this is not a functional... He doesn't become the son, right? The son has always been the son. This is, this is doctrine of the Trinity, eternally begotten. There was never a time when there was a father when there wasn't the son. Okay, and so Jesus, the sonship, okay, it's not because he does certain things but rather, he does certain things because he is the Son. Do you see that? Who he is determines what he does, not vice versa. And so the Father's saying, This is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This, this is the one whom we organized. We, we came up with this divine plan of redemption, and here it is. The time is here. This is the one you've been waiting for. The Father's affirming what Mark said earlier in verse 1 this is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And so we're getting a pretty, pretty clear picture as to the identity of Jesus. But then there's one other thing I want to draw your attention to on, on how, on the divine plan that's unfolding. Look at, look at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drives Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now some of you are going to be frustrated with Mark because he's, he's really scarce on the details. It's just in passing, he says he's, he's driven into the wilderness, he was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. In fact, Mark doesn't even explicitly say whether Jesus was victorious over the temptations. He just says he was being tempted. I mean, I think, I think we, can, we can assume, because the rest of the book we're going to see Jesus' clear authority over the, the, the demons, over Satan, over the powers of evil— I think it's it's safe to assume that Jesus is victorious over the temptation, and then we have the other gospel accounts to verify that. But the point that Mark is making is that the Spirit has just descended on him, and now the Spirit is what leads him into the wilderness. This is part of the mission. This temptation, this testing, is part of the plan. This wilderness experience is a period of testing. It's as if Jesus is proving himself as the Messiah. And so his, his victory over Satan tells us he has authority. We're going to see that next week and all throughout the, the rest of this gospel. He has authority over evil, over Satan. But it also tells us, as he's, as he's victorious over Satan, it tells us he didn't come to, to, to establish an earthly kingdom. He's not here to overthrow the Romans. There, there's a greater power that he's here to, to conquer, to fight, to overcome. He's on a spiritual mission and Satan and his demons are the target and so jesus in this period of testing does what no one else in the history of israel has done so think about this I, and I, th- I think this is i think this is safe i think there are two illusions here in jesus temptation to two figures before that did not succeed like jesus did i mean think about think about adam the the first adam in genesis 1 actually we're, we go to genesis 3 but but adam how many temptations did adam overcome Zero, one temptation, failed, right, that, that's, that's the fall, exiled, out of the land, you disobey, I, I gave you one command, you didn't do it, you're done, failure. But then think about, also, secondly, think about the nation of Israel, when, when, if you read through this passage carefully, you'll see wilderness, 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 I think Mark is doing that to point us to a memory of what happened in the wilderness, right, For, why did Israel first go into the wilderness, Right? They, they were punished for not believing, not being faithful, not obeying. And then they wandered and wandered and they grumbled and complained. Fail, fail, fail. They, they don't trust God. They don't believe him. They grumble and complain. They say, I wish we were still in Egypt. And so I think what Mark is doing is saying, here's the second Adam who doesn't fail where Adam did. Here's the true son of God, the true Israel Who isn't drawn astray by temptation? Who succeeds where Israel does? Jesus comes as part of the divine plan, the promised one, sent by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. There's a divine plan taking place before our eyes. And then lastly, Jesus must be understood in light of his message. In light of his message, verse 14 tells us that, that John's arrested, and then Jesus begins preaching the gospel. This, this, is, this, is, a, this is like a, an exit stage left. The prophet's gone. The voice is gone. The messenger's gone. And here's the main character. Here's the point. The one who it's all about is now there. Jesus takes center stage in verse 14 and he will remain on center stage throughout the rest of the gospel. There's a transition and Jesus, I think here in, in verse 14 and 15, this is a summary of his message. Mark is saying, "This is what Jesus came to proclaim." And this message it's twofold. One, the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. And then second, repent and believe in the gospel." Do you see those? That, that's verse 15. That's the, kind of the two-fold proclamation of Jesus. He begins by, by declaring, there in verse 15, "The time is fulfilled." In other words, no more waiting. I'm here. And with the presence of Jesus now in his public ministry on earth, carrying out this ministry, he's accomplishing God's plan of salvation, of redemption, of bringing the kingdom. And so Jesus says the time's now. The kingdom is at hand. God is breaking into history and establishing his rule and reign. The kingdom is here with my presence, Jesus says. The kingdom of darkness is under attack starting now. I'm here. Things are going to change The Savior has come. I mean, think about a time when it seemed as though God had forgotten his people. Years of silence. Here he is. Here's the Messiah. The Savior proclaiming the rule and the reign of God. Proclaiming the triumph of God's plan of salvation. The time is now. The fullness of time has come and Jesus steps on the stage. The kingdom is at hand which then leads to the second proclamation. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the two Two-fold message that are directly connected. The declaration of God's kingdom being at hand means the king's here. The king has come and that demands a response. I mean, the kingdom's here. You, you, don't, have a, you don't have someone preparing the way or, or you know, someone announcing the, the regal presence of a king saying, well, yeah, he's here. If, if you want to honor him as lord or king, then you can do that if you want. No, it's the king's here. And it demands a response. And so Jesus, the kingdom has come, and here's the response. Repent and believe in the gospel. If Jesus comes as the promised one, the Son of God, the Lord himself, then God is acting and bringing about his plan. And, And the only thing left for men and women to do is to respond. I mean, in Jesus, in the coming of Jesus, we're confronted with the word and the act of God. There's a divine summons. Allegiance is demanded. And so the two options to this to this divine summons is submit, submit to it, or refuse to submit to it. That's a choice that Jesus' followers were faced with, or the, the people walking at the time of Jesus, and that's the, the decision we're faced with. We can submit which Jesus clarifies as repentance and faith, as, as turning from, from one kingdom and acknowledging the rule and reign of another kingdom, another Lord, claiming allegiance to this one. That's what God demands of everyone here. God demands you to turn, to repent, to turn from your kingdom to his, to honor him as Lord. That's, that's repentance and faith. The gospel demands a response, but, but the second possible response to this divine summons is to refuse, to say Jesus was, he's just a good teacher, he's just a moral man, I'll follow his, the red letters in the Bible, they'll help me live better, but that misses the point, you miss Jesus. If you refuse, you, you just continue living as if, as if nothing ever happened, as if God hadn't entered into h- human history and done something, and accomplished salvation, you, you just continue to pers- pursue the, the present evil age, your own kingdom, living life as you want, living as though God had not spoken or acted, living as though Jesus were, as Lewis said, a madman or a fool. And so as we close this morning, let me, let me just ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Maybe you came here this morning with your mind made up. Maybe, maybe you have repented and believed and your faith is in Christ alone. And you are, you are endeavoring every day to honor him as Lord. You can be encouraged this morning. He's worthy of, of your worship. He's worthy of your life. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't know. Maybe you never, you never answered that question. Well, you are, you are forced. I'm forcing you. Mark is forcing you to address that question. Who do you say that he is? If you get this wrong, it's, it's a big... There, there's a lot at stake here. Jesus commands your faith, your obedience. God acted to save you. The kingdom of God means that, that though separate, those separated from God outside of his kingdom, kingdoms of another kingdom, or citizens of another kingdom, though that was the state of all of us, God acted to reconcile man to himself through the person and work of Jesus. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian. Jesus demands your allegiance. And he, he's a good shepherd The burden's not heavy. There's joy. There's hope. There's a future. And the demand on you is is to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And so I call you to do that this morning. Put your faith in Christ. God has acted in the person and work of Christ. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to have an invitation and so if, you, if you're not a Christian, you, you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, I'll be standing right over here. You can come, respond, I'd love to talk with you. If, if you're here and you are a Christian, take this time to pray for those who aren't Christians, but also pray for this, take this time and rejoice that God has saved you through the person and work of Christ. Let me pray and, and then we'll, we'll sing.